Donald Trump's popularity and what some see as a tell-it-like-it-is approach helped him vault past 16 other candidates for the Republican presidential nomination. But does his campaign have some of its origins in Arizona? I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, we'll dig into a piece by writer and Arizona native Tom Zellner in Phoenix New Times, where he explores how Arizona laid the foundation for Trump. We'll also get the perspectives of conservative John Gabriel of Ricochet.com. Plus, the old phrase goes, whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting over. John Fleck argues that collaboration and cooperation over the future of water in the West is more likely to happen than fighting. I'll ask Fleck why he's optimistic, even as the drought continues. Also, writer Craig Johnson's Longmire character has been featured in best-selling books and a series on Netflix. I'll ask Johnson about Longmire and what's next. Plus, PBS's Check, Please, Arizona has a new host, restaurateur Mark Tarbell. Here and Now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, we'll dig into a piece by writer and Arizona native Tom Zellner in Phoenix New Times, where he explores how Arizona laid the foundation for Donald Trump. Zellner and John Gabriel will join me. Plus, is water still for fighting over in the West, or will we see more cooperation among states to make the future less daunting? I'll check in with John Fleck, professor of practice at the University of New Mexico. He's also the director of the university's Water Resources Program. And Channel 8's Check, Please, Arizona is welcoming a new host as one restaurateur takes over for another. I'll talk to that new host, Mark Tarbell. We start today's program by catching up with Christine Jones, the businesswoman who very narrowly lost the Republican primary for Arizona's 5th Congressional District in one of the closest races in the state's history. Following a recount, Andy Biggs claimed victory by 27 votes. Jones had also run for the GOP gubernatorial nomination in 2014, but finished third. And Christine, welcome to Here and Now. You conceded to Andy Biggs following the recount, but are you left with a bad taste in your mouth? Am I left with a bad taste in my mouth? No, not at all. In fact, I think that when you finish well, you live to fight another day, and I did, and so I will. And you can't look back, you can't have a bad taste in your mouth, you can't be disgruntled or any of these other things that happens in our political process because you have to stay involved and you have to make your voice heard. So that's what I'm going to do. And observers have said, I would say universally, that you conceded very gracefully, but I'm wondering, just to play devil's advocate, that maybe you didn't necessarily have to because the district is considered to be a safe Republican seat, the sort of phrasing we tend to use. So presumably you could have kept fighting and not hurt the party's cause. Did you consider that at all? Well, the answer to all this, two different questions there. I could have continued to fight, and we could have pressed the case with an appellate court that said, hey, your honors, we wish that you would make sure that every single one of the votes gets counted, and there were around 300 votes that weren't counted that should have been. We could have done that. We could have gone to the Supreme Court for one thing or another. But in the end, the reason I ran for office is to represent people and to do it well. And continuing to fight in a an election contest where it's clear that a Republican is going to win, I never viewed as particularly helpful. So while my my lawyers and counsel may have said, hey, let's continue to fight this, it was my decision singularly to call Andy Biggs and say congratulations and to move on, because I think in life you just have to take your lumps and, and continue to fight. And considering what you said about the ballots and some of the votes, whether they were counted or not counted, whether it affects you or not, is that something you think needs fixing in the system? It certainly presented an eye-opener for me that there are parts of our system that have been improved greatly, and the county recorder and her staff have done 
an enormous amount of work to make sure that as few ballots don't get counted as possible, but there's still room for improvement. And I think it's a real opportunity for us to go back and say, how can we reform the system to make sure that every voter knows you must sign your ballot envelope in a way that matches your registration card. And if your signature has changed since you were 18, like mine has, mm-hmm. go update your, your registration. Every single voter should know if you vote in the wrong precinct, there is a federal law that says we must not turn voters away. Nevertheless, if I'm a poll worker, I should be required to tell you, if you vote here, your vote will not count. So if I were you, I'd go to the right precinct. Two very simple things where there's an opportunity for us to make a huge improvement, particularly in close races, and it's not all that hard to solve. Now, is that something you'll want to keep in the headlines? you want to keep uh, really laying that out? Because a lot of people between elections are going to forget that kind of thing. I sure hope that you and others who have a platform and have a voice will continue to keep it in the forefront of people's minds. It's possible that this election in November will be very close especially in some of the congressional races around the state where there are, there, there's less guarantee that a particular party will win the seat. But even in the presidential race, every single person should know if they made the effort, their voice should be heard and their vote should matter. So I hope it stays in the headlines. I'll continue to, to beat the drum about this. I'll continue to try to help educate voters. Because I tell you what, even as as involved as I am, I've twice run for office in this state. I've been an elected precinct committeeman, an elected state committeeman. I know an above average amount about elections. Even I, as an informed observer of this process, was surprised to find out these things. You lost by such a small margin. Uh, Is there anything you would have done differently in the campaign? Every person I talked to thought your ads, for one thing, stood out. They were interesting. They were intelligent. They were different. But is there anything in the actual campaigning you might have changed? I wouldn't change a thing. I think ubiquitously, if you talk to people in this state, they will agree we ran the best campaign. And on election night, I think the results spoke for themselves. We had the best ads. We had the best message. With all humbleness, I would say we had the best messenger. (laughs) And in this cycle in particular, it really helped to be an outsider with a conservative message. We see it all the way from local races up into the presidential level. People are ready for a non-politician. I wouldn't have changed a thing. What I would change is I would like for every vote to count and for the actual voters to choose the outcome of the election and not a court. And that's what happened in this case. Now, a phrase that's been getting a lot of attention over the past couple of cycles is dark money. And I saw some tweets after you conceded from people saying that, well, it looked like you had been defeated by dark money twice. Uh, Are you willing to fight against dark money? What are your thoughts about that generally? Well, I certainly know that dark money changed the outcome of my election both times and or at least influenced the outcome of the election both times. And I'm a fierce defender of the Constitution. I believe you have a right to engage in political speech, and it can be anonymous. And so to, to just sort of say I'm going to you know, jump into the fray of fighting dark money is, is such an overgeneralization. I do think candidates should disclose people that donate to them. And I do think if you're going to be a donor, you ought to have some kind of disclosure requirement. What shape that takes in light of the Supreme Court's opinion on political speech is another discussion for another day. And Christine, finally, are we going to see you run for office again in Arizona? 
I don't know if I'll run for office again. What I do know is that I love to make things exist that didn't exist before. So I'll continue to create jobs. I'll continue to try to enable young entrepreneurs to live their dream and fulfill them to commercialization. And as with the last two times, if an opportunity to present it presents itself where I can provide leadership, I'll sure be willing to take a look at it. That doesn't mean to say I'll do it, but I'll certainly consider it. Christine Jones was a candidate for the 5th Congressional District primary in the Republican Party and came very, very close to victory. Christine, thank you for the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Recent polls have indicated that Hillary Clinton may have a chance to win Arizona in November. Considering Democrats have only done that here in the presidential race once since 1952, it would be a major accomplishment. But also considering voter registration and the passion that a lot of residents apparently have for Donald Trump, it would also be a surprising outcome. In a piece he wrote for Phoenix New Times, Tom Zellner explores what Arizona has in common with Trump. Zellner, who's also the author of A Safeway in Arizona, what the Gabrielle Giffords shooting tells us about the Grand Canyon State and life in America, is with me now to talk about Trump and Arizona. Tom, good morning. Good morning. Tom, you cover a lot of things. One part of the piece includes the list that begins with an economy built on harebrained real estate deals found a perfect champion. Why does it make sense based on Arizona's history with real estate that they would be attracted to someone like Trump and especially from the East Coast point of view? Yeah, that's uh, uh, that's an interesting question. Here's someone with uh, you know a flagrant sort of uh, New York style walking into Arizona, which I argue um, you know sort of foresaw Trump. Uh, uh, there's 30 years of a foundation for his message really to have hit home uh, in our state, and uh, some of that has to do indeed with uh, an economy built on uh, real estate deals without the preparation of a, of a real economy. Are you discouraged? Uh, when you wrote the piece, um, did you write it as a wake-up call to people? Did you write it as something that, frankly, got you down? I didn't want to bash Donald Trump any more than has already been done. It's only to sort of point out the sociological factors which kind of paved the way for his uh, his ascendancy. Uh, I really think he found uh, a second political home in Arizona. And Legislation like SB 1070, um, for as, as many fireworks as that generated, uh, it sort of proved the market. Uh, it uh, established a, a, a base electorate for Donald Trump. Yeah, you use the phrase, a malodorous brand of politics, um, a greenhouse for Donald Trump. Um, this may be kind of a slam dunk question, Tom, but what are the clearest examples of that? There, are, You mentioned Russell Pierce, of course, Jan Brewer has mentioned. Sheriff Arpaio is still running for re-election again this year. Mm-hmm. I think we heard a little of it with the preceding guest. The credentialing of uh, uh, someone who comes not from a, a place of public service or who has, a, has had experience in government, who uh, appeals to voters based on that very outsiderness. You know, it's as if you're uh, asking uh, an outsider to come in and do your heart surgery. These things do require experience in coalition building and not necessarily a scorched earth kind of philosophy. And Doug Ducey... Uh, has some similarities, certainly, to Donald Trump, but he doesn't have uh, some partly the personality that I think you cite a little bit about Trump in the piece. Uh, Governor Five Symington, another businessman turned politician, and I don't want to say that he didn't say some bold things or try what he thought were bold ideas, but neither one is a, a chest beater. Uh, so I guess w- what in common do you see there? 
Yeah, this is certainly not a perfect analogy, and I'm I'm hoping that uh, listeners might uh, grab New Times uh, before it goes off the rack on Thursday and make up their own minds as to whether there's validity to this. There's plenty of holes in it, but nonetheless, you can sort of see the the path being blazed by um, uh, Arizona politicians going back to Evan Meekum, the the, the quintessence of an unprepared outsider uh, willing to say outrageous things uh, to to slam government and to to coast into uh, the office on a plurality and then uh, wreak all kinds of havoc. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with author Tom Zellner. He's a fifth-generation Arizonan. We're talking about his New Times piece called Proto-Trump, How Arizona Laid the Foundation for Donald Trump's America. Tom, when you hear about some of the things that went on, whether it's the Trump rally in Fountain Hills or his recent rally related to immigration policy right after he visited Mexico, um, does it concern you that you feel like Arizona has been so welcoming to Trump? Yes. I mean, the nation has has, has as well certain uh, pockets of the electorate all over the place, but uh, Arizona has given him a particularly uh, vociferous welcome. And it's my argument that this didn't come out of nowhere, that we've been primed to sort of accept uh, these uh, outrageous and extremist statements uh, as if they were logical, as if they were centrist. Um, a, a foundation has been laid. It's interesting as well to me that there has been uh... – there have been reports, even when Rick Perry was running for president, and a lot of people didn't think he was much of a candidate, but one thing that came up is the relation between Mexican-Americans or the country of Mexico with Texas as opposed to Arizona. And some people were pointing out where even with some of Texas's foibles, that relationship has been strong, whereas Arizona, it's very up and down. Do you see that as part of Trump's attraction? I absolutely do. Uh, and uh, Texas certainly has a mature political culture when it comes to uh, accepting um, a, a Latino uh, presence that uh, goes back uh, for four centuries. Uh, Arizona, for whatever reason, is less comfortable with this idea. And certainly uh, the Phoenix metro area is less comfortable than southern Arizona has been with our uh, our Mexican heritage, which, you know, um, uh, Anglo presence really, Anglo governing presence really only goes back to 1847. And with so many newcomers, so many migrants internally from the United States coming to Arizona to make a new life uh, for themselves, there's uh, there's a bit of cognitive dissonance. And I think many voters find it frightening and want to reach out for some kind of solution. Tom, the word came down a few days ago that that Sarah Palin, who had a house here in the Valley, the house has now been sold. And so she, at a time when she was John McCain's running mate and afterwards, she was sort of the darling in some conservative circles, also found some some great popularity here in Arizona. If Donald Trump doesn't win, um, what do you think some of his Arizona supporters do? Do you think they decide, okay, we'll try it again another time, or do you think they get angry? That's an excellent question. Um, is this the great man theory of history uh, going on here, that uh, the, the unique personality, uh, the unique charismatic style of, of Donald Trump provides this kind of uh, black swan that, that, that swims in and will never be seen again? Or does the political movement called Trumpism, uh, does it survive its namesake? Uh, do those supporters coalesce around a new figure who uh, frighteningly, it could be uh, more palatable than Trump, albeit with the same malodorous politics. And Tom, finally, though, I wouldn't anticipate you having a crystal ball in front of you. Um, based on what you wrote uh, and based on the history you talked about with Arizona and politics, does Hillary Clinton have a real chance here? 
This has been dreamed about, as you noted, uh, in Arizona for decades. Can the Democrats uh, finally turn the state uh, blue and revert it back to uh, what some consider its original progressive foundations uh, uh, enshrined in its own constitution and its own sort of New Deal uh, heritage? And uh, uh, I'm an optimist. I do believe that there's a chance to to do that, although this election season is uh, unlike any other. Author Tom Zellner, he's a fifth-generation Arizonan. We've been talking about his story in the latest edition of Phoenix New Times called Proto-Trump, How Arizona Laid the Foundation for Donald Trump's America. You can find it online. It's also be on the newsstands for another day or so. Tom, thanks for the time. My pleasure. And still to come on Here and Now, we'll talk with commentator John Gabriel about Tom Zellner's article. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by High Health. Introducing Jubilee Gummy Vitamins for kids and adults. Nourish your body with clean gummy vitamins, free of gluten and artificial sweeteners. Be a kid with Jubilee, exclusively at High Health and highhealth.com. Good morning. You're listening to Here and Now from KJZZ. We're also online, kjzz.org and the free mobile app. In traffic, we've got some slow traffic on the Loop 202 Red Mountain Freeway going eastbound. That's at Scottsdale Road due to an earlier accident. However, all the lanes are open. And it'll be partly sunny today, 20% chance of rain, looking for a high of 94 degrees. This evening, our chance of rain drops to 10%, with a low right around 78. By tomorrow, looking for a high of 90. Around the state right now in Tucson, it's 90 degrees and sunny, 65 in Flagstaff. In Phoenix, 94 degrees under partly cloudy skies at 1123. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. As a follow-up to Tom Zellner's article for Phoenix New Times, I'm now joined by John Gabriel. He's editor-in-chief of Ricochet.com, also a commentator and marketing consultant. John, welcome. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Well, so let's talk a little bit about the premise of Tom Zellner's article. Do you think that Donald Trump uh, is especially attractive in general? Do you think he jibes well with what Arizona voters want? I think he really does, and there are some disagreements I have with the article, but he definitely found, um, as he said earlier, uh, he found a second home here. And I think the state was primed with the SB 1070 fights and so forth with his tough immigration message. I think Arizona was primed, especially with all the retirees here. There, If you look at the polling, there's such a strong generational preference. The older you get, the more you support Trump. I think also Arizona, I have lived here my whole life, and Arizona – has a strong contrarian streak. Uh, people try to label it as somehow political, but I use my dad as a perfect example of that. He's voted for Republicans and Democrats, and when I ask why he votes for them, despite being a registered Republican, he always says, I haven't heard about them in the news. That means they aren't bugging me. They are not messing anything up, so I just want them in because I just please leave me alone. So I, I think that's a part of the appeal. Also, too, and going back to you mentioned Evan Meekum, a lot of it as well is you see in Arizona history history, um, a passionate desire to tweak the elites, to tweak the beltway, to tweak New York City and San Francisco and all those crazy liberals out there. Because uh, if you all tell us not to do A, we're going to do A just to spite you. It's funny, though, because 
Trump in many ways would fall into that category of elite, would he not? I mean, a, a New York, uh, New Jersey guy who's building buildings and towers with his own name on it. Exactly. And that's what I had uh, assumed at the start of the GOP primary, and much to my horror, that it did not turn out that way. If anybody is elite, he is. But he does, uh, he has always cultivated uh, the touch of the common man, and even in New York City, he's the Queen's kid who's moving to Manhattan and taking on those darn Manhattanites. And uh, so it, it is odd that a multimillionaire real estate developer, as you said, with his name always in all caps on everything he touches, um, is the underdog. I was also struck by this idea that, and I'm, I can't recall whether Trump has actually used this phrasing, but the whole silent majority thing, which Richard Nixon used at the time. Do you feel like there has been a silent majority that was sort of brought up when Russell Pierce uh, put together 1070, when Governor Brewer signed it? And then do you think Trump has sort of, maybe those people have been laying low a little bit, maybe in some Republican primaries, but otherwise we don't really hear from them much. But now that Trump has sort of allowed them to reawaken. Yeah, I think they feel safe, uh, especially with his increasingly uh, strident rhetoric. Um, he calls it just being politically incorrect, but it's almost designed to tweak certain constituencies, let's say. And I think people feel emboldened. Wow, if he can say it, I can go even a little bit farther. And you see that, gosh, just turn on the Internet if you dare and uh, read some commentary there. Turn on to some of the louder voices in the media and you see it again and again. People are getting emboldened for the first time in my life. I'm seeing lifelong Republicans praising a KGB agent in uh, Vladimir Putin. So this is, I think it would be, and this has been something people have been doing for decades. What, what is, what is wrong with the Republican party in Arizona? Well, the party seems to continue to win elections. So I guess not that much, but when it comes to Trump, does that brand hurt the Arizona Republican party at all? And have you been surprised that some of the leaders haven't tried to push themselves away from him more? Um, I haven't been surprised by it in that the people who are most dedicated to voting, again, uh, Arizona skews uh, older than the national average, especially among Republicans. And I think there is a strong affinity towards people like Joe Arpaio. Uh, before, we talked about Evan Meekham. I think uh, where the New Times article breaks down a bit is comparing him, well, Trump's a businessman, Doug Ducey's a businessman. Um, Trump is his own animal, and I always have viewed him as more of a crony capitalist than a just a hardworking entrepreneur. Um, he's, you know, very good at uh, mastering and manipulating the press, as we've seen repeatedly. Um, but I think there is a lot of affinity for people who tweak the noses of the mythical party boss establishment that's uh, secretly uh, pulling puppet strings on us all. And I think politicians, even those who are actually elites, are very scared to annoy that constituency because they are very loud. And I was trying to think if Arizona had any sort of larger-than-life business characters, because you mentioned Doug Ducey, yes, businessman. Five Symington, maybe for a slight time, had that. Christine Jones, who we talked to earlier in the program, mm -hmm. doesn't really have that. Evan Meekham was in a real quirky way, but he was also right. a car dealer. I mean, yeah. so, so I, can't, I can't really think of anyone who fits that profile here. Right. I think the only thing Phoenix has had in its recent history would be Jerry Colangelo. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but he, he would dabble in politics here and there, but he never tried to force his opinion. He was more about loving the various sports that he was involved with and raising uh, Arizona's profile. Um, he was involved in politics and getting um, the Chase Field, formerly Bank One Ballpark, built. Uh, so you had that issue. But no, none of our uh, business people, they, they seem more about the bottom line and not about flamboyant, uh, showy personality, and maybe because we don't have the uh, domineering media culture that you would have on the coasts. And John, going back to Tom Zellner's article, he used the term malodorous to describe some of what has gone on in Arizona. 
I think a lot of people have been disturbed by some of the legislation that come out. In fact, the legislature gets blamed for most of the negative things that, that come about. Um, and yet there's also that, that group of people who are almost too positive, shall we say. Do you think there's enough of a, a middle group? And I don't mean middle politically, but middle in terms of expectations here. I think that there is. Um, it'll be interesting to see how this election turns out because Trump has been uh, surprisingly close to Clinton in presidential polling for Arizona, and we'll see how it shakes out. Um, we are several weeks out, and that's an eternity in politics, of course. Um, but I think one thing that uh, mellows out the uh, voter outrage here and there in Arizona is we have so much of a transient population, and they might not vote in local races, in races for your local school board. They will turn up for the presidency. And we have so many people who come out to work here for one of the big tech corporations for a couple of years and then move on, and they kind of uh, reduce the, uh, the anger of uh, very angry longtime Arizonans, let's say. But how nasty do you think this November is going to be? Because you'll have Trump and, of course, Sheriff Arpaio, who we've seen a lot of ads from. Maybe he feels like this, his back is against the wall. He's going to use all those millions that he has. I mean, could because of those two being so polarized, do you think it could be even nastier than usual? I think it will be nastier than usual. And you're seeing on the national stage, and I think we'll definitely see that in Arizona. There's so many incriminations and so many attacks on the integrity of the voting system itself which is a pretty combustible con uh, um, combination because w what I'm concerned about, so many of us are like, oh my gosh, November's almost here and then it'll be over. What I'm very concerned about is if it's a very close race, that incrimination season will be open starting uh, right after election day. And John, finally, where do we go from here? Um, let's say Donald Trump doesn't win. He wins Arizona, but let's say he doesn't win the country. Where do some of those Trump voters in Arizona go? Do they sort of go back to hating John McCain, for example, or do they find something else to do? I think they would like to go after John McCain, but if if he is reelected, they won't have him as their next uh, the next head they want on their mantle. Instead, I think they'll go for Jeff Flake, who has been very uh, outspoken in his opposition to Trump. And uh, I've already seen a lot of chatter of trying to make him public enemy number one. John Gabriel is a commentator and marketing consultant. He's also editor-in-chief of ricochet.com. And John, thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. For as long as anyone can remember, there have been concerns about whether there's enough water for a city like Phoenix to be sustainable in the long run. The reality seems even more daunting after years of drought and disputes over what share of the Colorado River states like Arizona and California may get. And most headlines indicate those disputes are getting worse. But in his new book, Water is for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West, John Fleck paints a fairly optimistic picture about cooperation and collaboration. And John, welcome to Here and Now. Thanks so much for having me. So John, why did you have to dash the downward hopes and dreams of certain people by saying, in essence, that water and fighting don't have to be connected? I mean, what about these? What about the, the quote that was attributed to Mark Twain? Well, <clears throat> so first of all, Mark Twain didn't say it. The, the old quote <laughs> that whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting over, um, um, there's no evidence that he said it. And, and it seems to have come up rather recently in the last few decades. But, but more importantly, one of the things that scholars who study water governance and water transboundary conflicts find is that it is far more common, both here in the United States and also internationally, for um, 
parties who share a river or share an aquifer across a border or a boundary to figure out ways to collaborate and cooperate it through treaties, through compacts, and through informal water sharing arrangements. And so waters for fighting over sounds good, and it gets a lot of attention. I'm a former journalist, and we love writing about stories of conflict. But in fact, far more often, water is in fact for collaborating over. It's not as sexy a story. It doesn't get as much of attention, but it, it's the thing that happens most commonly. Well, you do mention, of course, uh, the court case, Arizona versus California, a legendary case which did, in fact, involve fighting over water. Is it time now to just think of that as history and not something that continues to define this water relationship among a lot of Western states? I think very much so. I mean, Arizona has perhaps more than any other Western state a sort of pugilistic history. And there's this um, sort of long-standing attitude among Arizonans, and it really has dominated your state's political culture, you know, for for the last century. That um, California is the enemy, and that California is out to steal your water. And Arizona pursued that with a passion, especially in the first half of the 20th century. Um, and it really hurt you. Um, Arizona, at a time when everybody else was um, trying to figure out how to share the Colorado River, Arizona was. Um, very much in conflict, you know, refused to ratify the compact, you know, repeatedly went to court, you know, famously dispatched the National Guard in the 1930s to try to prevent the construction of Parker Dam. And the result was that as these complicated deals were being made, Arizona was often not at the table. And so you all now have sort of junior priority in the Colorado River, which, which has hurt you. It's still an undercurrent of the politics of Arizona, and I think it continues to hurt Arizona to the extent that, um, you know, this fear that California is going to steal your water is is part of your politics, because what has to happen now is some really complicated deals where everybody agrees to give up some water. Um, And if you think California is out to steal it, then it makes those kind of agreements harder. And John, you even write that Arizona has always been its worst enemy, and that the state's behavior is driven by psychology as much as geography. What makes... What would make Arizona modify that point of view? Because as, as you said, there's a lot of political capital or there has been for decades to, to show, hey, we're fighting California. Um, one of the interesting things about Arizona um, to me is when, if you look at the his, Arizona's history of water, a lot of it is driven by this sort of psychodrama of fear of running out of water and fear of aridity. And, and I get that. I mean, I'm a desert dweller, too. I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is also a dry place. And, you know, you get this sense um, of the desert sort of um, looming around you, and there's that sort of sense of fear of running out of water. Um, uh, but one of the interesting things that Arizona doesn't give itself enough credit for is the enormous success and what, in fact, you have done over the last, you know, 10, 20, 30, really going back at least 30 years, is, is Arizona has actually demonstrated the ability to survive and be successful and even thrive with a lot less water. Um, and the problem is that, and this is common in arid climate cities, is that we don't give ourselves enough credit for our successes. And if you don't understand that you've been successful, so like Phoenix, for example, water use in Phoenix peaked in 2002 and has been declining ever since. You know, and right, right, we know what has happened to population during that time. Population has been going up. Total water use is, is going down. So that's a success. And if you sort of recognize that that's possible, you're less likely to feel like you need to fight for the remaining share of what is clearly a dwindling resource in the Colorado River. 
And it does seem like water is the one issue that people on all sides of the political debate can come together on saying that, yeah, to realistically have Phoenix and the rest of the Valley and, even, and Tucson and other areas really thrive, they're going to have to come to sort of an agreement about how water is used, how water is saved, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's going to require using less water. Um, and, but the interesting thing is that um, we've already demonstrated, you know, Phoenix and Tucson are great examples, Las Vegas, my own home community of Albuquerque, um, have already demonstrated the ability to use a lot less water and sort of learning from those successes and giving ourselves credit for those successes is really critical because we're going to have to do more of it. We're going to have to use even less and we're going to have to learn to get by um, with even less water than we're using now. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with John Fleck and his new book is called Water is for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West. John, drought is a reality. Um, and so are you convinced that if the drought continues, that enough changes in places like Arizona, California, New Mexico are being made in order to counteract its effects or at least deal with them seriously? Um, I'm going to waffle on the answer because it's clear, and this is one of the things that really motivated my book, it's clear that there has been enormous success and, and communities, and so part of that success is just using less water. Part of that success is learning how to use less water, you know, learning what conservation measures look like and how to implement them both at a community level and an institutional level and a regional level. Um, and so we've demonstrated that ability. Um, the question is, how much farther will we need to go? I mean, drought is enduring. Climate change clearly makes this problem much more difficult. Um, um, uh, scientists recently described it as sort of attacks on our water supply. When it's warmer, you get more evaporation off of the plants and the, the swimming pools and, and so on. So um, the problems are harder. So we could fail at this if we don't recognize the successes we've had and if we're not willing to continue to push harder to go farther. And one of the things that you feature in the book is collaboration, and collaboration in some cases from unexpected sources. Were they as unexpected to you as they might be to a reader? Um, They were really unexpected to me because I came of age. I mean, I've been writing about water as a journalist for 30 years, and I came of age in in the, the narrative of Cadillac Desert in the sense that of sort of skullduggery and conflict and then the doom and risk we've created, um, and, and I spent a lot of my journalistic career telling stories like that and looking for these problems. And it was only in the um, really the last 10 or 15 years, and, and it's, the work really started here in New Mexico, very significant drought conditions since the turn of the century. Um, and I kept looking for stories of people of conflict over water and people running out of water. And you could find them now and then. But far more often what I was realizing was that communities were not running out of water. And as a journalist, that's kind of a weird story. How do you write about a community not running out of water? But they were much more common. You know, I had an old editor who used to, used to say, John, we don't write about planes that don't crash. Well, most planes don't crash. And if you're trying to think about planeness, you know, what, what, how planes work, you know, that's also an interesting feature. And I began to look at these stories of communities not running out of water. What were they doing that was successful? What can we learn from them? And partly is just internal conservation measures, and partly is these collaborative relationships with neighboring communities, with neighboring water users across, you know, water agency boundaries and state boundaries, and, you know, most recently in the case of um, the relationship between you and U.S. and Mexico on across international boundaries. And those are the things that don't get as much attention because they're just quiet successes. Um, but they become really important um, both because of the success they've achieved and also the lessons that they give us 
for the additional success we're going to need to deal with an increasingly difficult um, environment going forward. And there are a lot more stories and details in the book Water is for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West. The author is John Fleck. John, thanks for the time. Thank you so much for having me. And still to come on Here and Now, we'll meet the creator of the Longmire books and the related Netflix series, and we'll find out about the new host of Check, Please, Arizona on PBS Channel 8. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by CenturyLink. With data, voice, cloud services, and more, CenturyLink offers communication solutions for businesses. Services not available everywhere. Information at CenturyLink.com helpful. And you're listening to Here and Now on KJZZ 91.5 FM. We're also online at KJZZ.org. Thanks for joining us. In traffic, the freeways look clear in the valley. No accidents to report right now. A little bit of slowing on the Loop 202 eastbound at Scottsdale due to an earlier accident. Coming up in about 20 minutes on Here and Now, we'll hear from a Syrian refugee family who's been relocated to Texas. And also how to gracefully quit your job and how companies can prevent employees from leaving in the first place. Those stories are more on Here and Now from NPR. Partly sunny in the valley, we've got a 20% chance of showers, a high of 94 degrees this evening, a 10% chance of rain, a low right around 78. Tomorrow, our chance of rain increases again to 40%, looking for a high of 90. Right now around the state, it's sunny and 90 in Tucson, mostly cloudy skies, 65 degrees in Flagstaff. In Phoenix, it's partly cloudy and 94 degrees. It's 1142. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Mysteries are one of the most popular genres of fiction in the U.S. and all over the world. The protagonists range from Scotland Yard detectives to burglars to students, and the settings are often vital to the storyline and the characters. That's certainly the case with the Longmire Mysteries. Craig Johnson is the author of the series of Longmire books featuring Wyoming Sheriff Walt Longmire. There's also a related series on Netflix called Longmire. Johnson will be at Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale tonight at 7, and he's with me now. For people who are most familiar with Walt Longmire from the Netflix series, which I have to admit, I talked to a couple of people over the last few days, and they know of the books, but they've actually watched the TV series. So for those who don't know the series of books as well, what are the origins of the character from when you started writing them, and, and how has Walt changed, evolved? Back when I first started writing the novels, um, that was back when the CSI stuff was really kind of a craze, you know, even, even as it still is today. Um, but it was all these books, all these TV shows, all about the technology and everything, and the, the forensics, the ballistics, you know, the DNA evidence and all this stuff. And so I actually ran into a uh, division of criminal investigation investigator in Wyoming where we have one crime lab in the whole state. And I asked him, I said, how long does it take you guys to get DNA evidence? And he says, is this a high-profile case? And I said, yeah, let's pretend like it's a high-profile case. And he said, about nine months. And so I thought, okay, well, that's not particularly honest in what it is that they're doing. And so I started thinking about, well, what if you did a procedural that took place in the least populated county in the least populated state in America, you know, which is Wyoming with only 500,000 inhabitants? And it seemed to me that, you know, maybe that would make me fo- focus more on place and on character and uh, and make for some more interesting writing. And uh, that's how, how Walt uh, came to be. And uh, Walt was, I guess I, I had seven books under my belt when Warner Brothers got in touch with me about doing the television show. And um, it was interesting like that because, you know, one of the things they wanted to know was why was Walt as big as he was 
um, in the books, um, because in the books, Walt's about six foot five and weighs about 255, 260 pounds. He's a big guy. Um, and I explained, well, he, you know, he played football for USC, like he was a Marine investigator, you know, and, and the job is just a lot easier, you know, when you're a rural sheriff, if you're a big guy. <laughs> well, you mentioned big guys, and this is, of course, an old series. It popped to mind was Gunsmoke with uh, James Arness, who didn't really say much, but was just this enormous guy in, in Dodge City. And it felt like, yeah, it had to have this not even you know, intimidation with appearance, uh, even if you were the calmest guy of all time, it gives people sort of a second thought. Uh, you know, is this guy dangerous because of his size or is he going to be thinking through things? And I think that's part of what appeals to at least some people I've talked to about the Longmire character, too. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Walt kind of harkens back on, in many ways, you know, to, uh, you know, a lot of those cowboy, uh, you know, stylings of like, you know, of, of a previous era. I mean, you know, there was a period in time when there was something like 87 westerns on television and uh you know and lord knows how many you know novels were being knocked out um on a monthly basis and uh you know but we've kind of gone through a little bit of a you know you know an evolutionary process as far as protagonists in crime fiction are concerned you know i mean we've kind of gone through the the anti-hero kind of thing since the 1960s and so you know it's kind of hyper accelerated in the last couple of decades to the point where it's kind of getting difficult to tell the good guys from the bad guys and I think that, you know, Walt is kind of a throwback, you know, to those Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, you know, kind of characters. Not that he's not complex, not that he doesn't have a lot of things he has to deal with in the contemporary American West. But, you know, nonetheless, you know, he, he kind of has a code. He kind of has a, what my grandfather used to say, he covers the ground he stands on. Mm. And, uh, and that makes him, you know, something almost avant-garde uh, in, you know, the, the landscape of television these days. The way you described Walt... You've written about these characters for a long time, so are they kind of alive for you? Well, I mean, one of my favorite quotes, you know, on, on fiction is the, the one from Wallace Stegner where he says, the greatest piece of fiction ever written is the disclaimer at the beginning of every book that claims <laughs> that no one in this book is based off anybody alive or dead. <laughs> um, you know, well, that's the greatest piece, that's the biggest crock ever written like that. And, uh, you know, to be honest, you know, I mean, I, I utilize, you know, an awful lot of real people, you know, in my books, people that I work with, people that I know, family members, friends, you know, all of these things. And it's a dangerous proposition, you know, when you live in a state that has only 500,000 people in it, because generally everybody knows who you're talking about. <laughs> and uh, the only place that it gets even worse is actually up on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation, um, because there are only 5,000 enrolled members of the Northern Cheyenne tribe. And so, you know, whenever I put any of them in my books, everybody knows who I'm talking about. Um, but, you know, I think that that gives a, a relative quality, you know, to the books and keeps them kind of grounded in a reality that, you know, is something that I'm trying to, you know, accomplish with the books. I don't ever want to write the books where Walt is, you know, on a cruise ship or Walt is, you know, chasing Al-Qaeda in Crook County or something. I want Walt, you know, dealing with a lot of the things that, you know, actual Western sheriffs deal with. Um, and the way that I, I also control that to a certain extent is just about every single one of the books, all 12 of them, I can go back and find a seminal newspaper article, you know, from, you know, some small town that I used as a catalyst, you know, for each one of the novels. And, you know, I, I think that helps. I think that helps a lot. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with Craig Johnson. He's the author of the series of Longmire books, also a related series on Netflix called Longmire, and it'll be at Poison Pen in Scottsdale tonight at 7. Craig, you mentioned Native American representation in the books. Uh, how important is that, and how important is it that it is accurately portrayed? Well, it's essential. I mean, you know, for no other reason than, uh, you know, those are, those are my neighbors. Those are my friends. You know, my ranch is uh, in Ucross, Wyoming, population 25, up near the Montana border at the base of the Bighorn Mountains. And so, you know, just directly north of me, 
Um, that's the Northern Cheyenne Reservation, the Crow Reservation. And so those are my friends, my family, my neighbors. Like, and so it's very important that I make sure that I get that information right because, you know, as, as much as I, you know, want to make sure I get that right, I'm not Northern Cheyenne. So there's a certain respect, you know, that I have to pay to the culture, you know, to the history um, and to those people like that to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm playing honest, you know, with them. And I've been extraordinarily fortunate that, you know, I know a lot of people on the res who are very close friends of mine who were, you know, the basis for just about every single character um, in the books. And um, and they, they are, they're absolutely essential to make sure that I get everything right. It's it's important. You know, I mean, I always feel like whenever I'm reading a piece of contemporary Western literature, if there aren't any Indians in it, I'm always thinking to myself, okay, something's kind of missing here. It seems like, and I, and I do say Indian because my Northern Cheyenne friends make fun of me when I try and be politically correct and say Native American. They always look at me and go, "Where were you born?" And I say, "Well, I was born in America." So you would be Native American too, then, wouldn't you? So, Craig, I want to talk to you a little bit about being a writer who has written a string of successful books. And I've talked to some writers; they're almost tormented, frankly. They they say to me that they write because they're they're driven to and they have to. You sound like a guy who, in general, has fun and enjoys life. And I wonder, <laughs> d- does that apply to writing as well? Well, yeah, I, I'm I'm not dreadfully tormented. No, like, I, 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 I'm I'm having the time of my life. You know, you got to be kidding me. Like, uh, years on the New York Times bestsellers list. You know, a, a television show that's trending on Netflix practically every night. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, I'm I'm really kind of getting the chance to do what it is that I really wanted to do, you know, my whole life. And, uh, you know, for me, it's an incredible opportunity, you know, to be able to write these books. And, you know, and a lot of it also has to do, you know, I think, you know, with Walt, you know, um, you know, he's he's a really good character and I enjoy his company. You know, one of the things I, I laugh at consistently is, you know, whenever I'm overseas, because the, the books have been translated into, you know, about 12 languages and everything. And so, you know, I'll be other places and uh, people will always say, boy, Walt sure seems smart for a Wyoming sheriff. And I'm not sure which part of that I'm going to take umbrage with first when they say it. Like, but uh, you know, he is—he's good company. Like, he's funny. Um, he's smart. Um, he, he kind of exemplifies all of the the things that I think you know the 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 wonderful things that you know that I would hope you know that uh, you know someone who is a, a Western sheriff you know would embody. You know, I've written 12 books. I'll have another one out next year. You always wonder, you know, if you're writing a series of books, if you're ever going to run out of ideas. And, you know, I've got so many file folders full of newspaper articles and magazine articles and stories people have told me and everything. I'm going to die before I get them all written down. And uh, it's just uh, it's a pretty wonderful life. And and the fact that, you know, I've also got a ranch, you know, up uh, on the on the border there. And it's... Um, it's a very physical life, I think. You know, I'm out, you know, I'm outside, you know, working with the stock, doing irrigation, you know, and all of that kind of work. And and so it's an and actually it's a pretty nice balance, you know, between the two. I've got the intellectual aspect of writing the books, and then I've got the physical aspect of being out there um, in nature, um, which is you know an essential part of the books, an essential part of my life. Craig Johnson is the author of The Longmire Mysteries. His latest is called An Obvious Fact. He'll be at Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale tonight at 7. And the latest series of Longmire on Netflix is available coming up this Friday. Craig, thanks very much for the conversation. Good to talk with you. My pleasure. Anytime. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. 
Check Please Arizona has been an award-winning program for KAET Channel 8, which has produced it since 2011. It features three panelists, all regular people from the Valley, talking about some of their favorite eating spots and includes visuals of food that are bound to make you hungry. As production begins for the program's seventh season, a new host, successful Valley chef and restaurateur Mark Tarbell, takes over from the original host, another successful Valley chef, Robert McGrath. And Mark Tarbell is with me for a few minutes from his Phoenix restaurant, Tarbell's, to talk about his new role. Mark, good morning. Hello, Steve. How are you? I'm good. So you're not new to television, but this position is different. What are you hoping to bring to viewers? Because I think when people hear that you're going to be hosting this, they think we're going to get a lot of expertise in this. Yes, I have done the weather on Channel 3 years ago, but <laughs> this is my first hosting position. I'm really excited about it. It's awesome. We, uh, you know, it's right up my alley. You know, I love food, um, love people. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, the show's so engaging, and I think people have really connected with it. You know, Robert did a great job with it. Yeah, Mark, and Mark, to follow up, though, I think there, when people watch, they think, okay, we're going to see three folks sort of just like us who've tried restaurants, may have certain insights uh, because it's a restaurant they like. But I think that, again, with someone like you, there's this idea, are you going to be able to sort of dip in a little bit and say, oh, yes, well, that ingredient is this, or yes, I I know about this particular kind of meal? Because I think that's something that would really help people get even more involved. Yes, I'm going to try to bring illuminate color, expand on some of the thoughts, uh, talk about, you know, in light ways, talk about technique or reasons why things are. Um, I, I'm really excited about bringing that, you know, my my you know, experience part of it to the food and to service as well to help people really get a good picture of, I think, what these restaurants are all about. And um, what I love about this show is you said people like you and me being on it. I think that's one of the most compelling parts of it. Um, I, I, I think it's like having Yelp on TV. You know, you're, you're basically projecting it out there. It's real people talking about real experiences, and I think that is way more powerful in many ways. Um, I think it's powerful. I think it's wonderful. Mark, how often do you get to eat out? I imagine you're, you're kind of busy with what you do for your business, so are you looking forward to having a chance to try new restaurants also? This was one of the number one reasons why I took, the, took this gig. <laughs> I have been so busy. and I work at night. I, I basically work when people play, and I've, that's been my life, and I love it. Uh, good news is I never have to wait in line for movies. I go at midnight. But um, so what really, but getting down to that, it really is going to give me a chance to get out to restaurants that I've heard of, some that I've never heard of, get into different neighborhoods and really experience things. Um, it, it's a wide variety of what they these guests bring to the show. So I'm really, really excited to get a more expanded view and really just have a chance to have a night out. Let's be frank, I don't get out much. <laughs> I guess it's dependent on what the panelists, uh, where they want to go with some of the producers, they sort of try to fit the restaurants together in in a group, I guess, in a sense. But would you, as someone who's been a Phoenix chef and restaurateur for as long as you have, is there a certain kind of restaurant, a certain kind of area that you'd love to see feature that maybe you you haven't seen that much of, uh, a kind of, I don't know, a kind of background, a sort of different style, anything that you feel like um, could could even make the show better? Because we'll, we'll see different sorts of restaurants, different kinds of food. Well, I, I can't really uh, comment on that because I know how this process works. It really is quite sophisticated. They explained it to me. I personally will not have any input on either the guests or the restaurant selected. Um, so, And frankly, I think that their philosophy and their what they're doing is try to have a, a broad range of price, um, ethnic um, origin, all of this, and to really show a very textured and interesting view of what is available currently in the val- valley. So 
and from breakfast, lunch, dinner spots. You know, it really is all over the board, and they already do that. So I couldn't ask for um, them to do more. I think what what they are doing currently and what they will continue to do, I think, is really what's best. And Mark, could you ask them to go lower key on the visuals? Because if you watch at midnight or watch at 10 in the morning or 7 at night, it makes people really hungry. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, the camera people down there are amazing. I mean, and the equipment they have. Yeah, it's, it's you know, you can't say it on air what they how they describe, you know, the food. But, yeah, <laughs> it's real good. <laughs> it's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. A few more minutes left with Valley Chef and restaurateur Mark Tarbell. He's taking over as the host of Check, Please, Arizona on Channel 8. New season starts up in January, and production for the next season is just getting started as well. Mark, I did want to ask you this. Your restaurant was featured on the second season of Check, Please. And I was catching up on the episode yesterday, and the panel loved your restaurant. The only criticism, I think, was from one person who thought the salmon was slightly overcooked or something like that. Do you think the role of Check, Please is to offer information, as we said, sort of have regular people, or should there be some critical aspects of it? I mean, if, if you as a restaurateur, if you saw the average person criticize your restaurant, would you be thinking, okay, that's an improvement I can make, or what does that person know? Um, I think it's always an improvement we have to look at. We take things very seriously, whether they're done in writing, on air, or on the on, on the radio. It, it really doesn't matter. We take it very seriously and look into it. The um, I do believe that, respectfully, um, it should be an honest assessment of the restaurant and its, and its experience. Um, and I do mean respectful. We're not a gotcha program, and we're never going to be <clears throat> that's not the purpose. That we're really there to promote the. Uh, at least I, I view my position as to promote um, restaurants in the valley and, and the culinary scene in the valley, which is already very good, getting better every day. And that's, I think, what we all need to see. And Mark, are you going to try to be as enthusiastic as possible as well? Are you thinking? Uh, are you going to have a persona? Or are you going to be sort of the the way you are in your own restaurant? Well, I'm just going to be me and, um, you know, the mild-mannered, uh, <laughs> cape-wielding, you know, chef restaurateur. Um, I, I, uh, I can't help it. I'm just going to do what I do and, and speak free, freely and frankly about what I, what I want to say. So um, you, you know, I can't really I, – I don't want to affect a personality. That's just not who I am. So I think I'm just going to, you know, be me. And hopefully that works. That's Valley Chef and restaurateur Mark Tarbell. His Phoenix restaurant is called Tarbell's. He's taking over as the host of Check, Please, Arizona on KAET Channel 8. Mark, thanks very much. Thank you, Steve. Have a great day. And that's all for today's edition of KJZZ's Here and Now. Thanks to senior producer Sarah Ventry and Tiara Vianne for their assistance on the program. And thank you very much for listening. If you want to hear my conversations with Christine Jones or Mark Tarbell or our discussion about Donald Trump in Arizona, please go online to kjzz.org later this afternoon. You can also download the free KJZZ app to your smartphone. This is member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great rest of the day. It's 12 o'clock. KJZZ is supported by Moores and Cabot Investments and D.N. Griebel in their Mesa branch. Moores and Cabot is a 125-year-old national wealth management firm that is a member of the New York Stock Exchange, FINRA, and SIPIC.